Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. And uh, we have a little bit of sunshine today, and it's a, a beautiful day to be in the Lord's house. And uh, we have some visitors here this morning, and uh, lots of people here this morning. So I want to welcome everyone here this morning to our services. Uh, do we have any, uh, there are no announcements in particular in the bulletin, um, but uh, we do have uh, one announcement here. If you're interested in baptism or becoming a member of the church here, uh, let either one of the deacons or uh, Ian uh, know. And, uh, and that will be in our baptism has been planned for the first Sunday of August, you said August? Yep. Of August, so uh, be in prayer for that. It's always a wonderful experience uh, to, be ha to have a, a, a baptism and uh, see people growing in their faith. Any announcements this morning that need to be made? Yes, Donna. Very nice, beautiful, beautiful. Any other announcements this morning? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, for the opportunity to be in your house and the opportunity to fellowship with other believers. We thank you for each person that's here this morning. And Lord, you have given each one of us a, a different path. And sometimes you have given us mountaintop experiences that we can be excited. And other times we are going through the valleys and the shadows. And we pray that you'd watch over each one of, each one of us as we go through those uh, valleys and the shadows as well. We just thank you for how you love each one of us and that you watch over each one of us no matter what our situation is. We pray that you just help us to continue to put our trust in you each and every day. We pray that you would bless our service this morning. We pray that everything that we say and do would be honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Why don't we stand and we will uh, have our call to worship, which is on the back of your, um, the back of your uh, bulletin. Let's stand and we will read our call to worship responsive reading and then we will turn in our green book to number 96. Let's stand. Praise the Lord. Praise, Praise the, the Lord, Lord, O my soul. He executes justice for the oppressed he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed low. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, 
Praise the Lord. Amen. You would turn to number 96 in your green book, and we will sing, O Sing, which is to the tune of all hail the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward for the morning offering, please.
Luther, would you pray, please? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, oh, how you have blessed us. We give back, O oh Lord, a portion that you allow us to have in the first place. Help us use it wisely by your will and by your way. And we pray all this for Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 18. If you'd like to follow along, we'll be reading to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is in, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Matthew would stand again and sing with me number 211 in your green book, and then we'll go directly into number 214. Let's stand and sing. 211. Remain and ever stand. 
Turn to 2.14. There is one gospel. one gospel on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my Father's plan. The Son has rescued me. Oh, what a gospel, oh, what a peace. My highest joy and my deepest need. Now and forever He is my light. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one gospel to which I cling, all else I count as loss. For there where justice and mercy meet, he saved me on the cross. No more I boast in what I can bring, no more I carry the weight of sin, for he has brought me from death to life. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one gospel where hope is found, the empty tomb still speaks, for death could not keep my Savior down. He lives and I am now on my Savior I fix my eyes, my life is His and His hope is mine. For He has promised I too will rise, I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this gospel the church is one, we do not walk alone. We have His Spirit as we press on to lead us safely home. And when in glory still I will sing of this old story that rescued me. Praise to my Savior, the King of life. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when in glory still I will sing Of this old story that rescued me Praise to my Savior, the King of life I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ Praise to my Savior, the King of life I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Good singing this morning, church. Let's, uh, let's take a moment now to go to the Lord together in prayer.
Our Father and our God, we come to you this morning so thankful that, that we can come to you in prayer. So thankful that we can know you. So thankful that we, when we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, even when we were dead, that you made us alive with Christ. We know by grace we have been saved. What a wonder, Lord, that we who were once dead in sin have now been raised up with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places. And what a wonder to know that in the, in the coming ages, you're going to just continue to show the immeasurable riches of your grace in kindness towards us in Christ. We know, Father, that by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not of ourselves, not a result of works. We come with nothing in our hands to bring, nothing to boast about, but only in Christ. We know that we ourselves are your workmanship, created in Christ for good works. As we come to you this morning, Father, we're we're made aware as we come into your presence of our sin and of our need for you. We confess, Father, that we've erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep, that we have followed too much, even this week, the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against your holy laws. We've left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we've done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would have mercy on us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent according to the promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we ask that you'd grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that we would now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Let's take a moment now to silently confess our sins unto God. Hear now this wonderful word of forgiveness from Psalm 103 for all those who truly call on the Lord. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We thank you and we praise you, Father, for the great kindness you've shown us in Jesus. And as we come to you now in prayer, we come not as sinners, but as forgiven saints. We come carrying our sins and our transgressions no longer. Christ bore them on the cross. And we come to you not as aliens and strangers, Lord, but as sons and daughters 
adopted in Christ. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity we have to gather together with your people. We thank you for the gift that it is to be a, to be a part of a church and for the encouragement we gain from one another and the, the fellowship and the encouragement we gain from the word of God. And we ask, Lord, for the, your blessing over the rest of this service. We know, Lord, um, nothing can happen here of any great effect apart from your working. Unless the Lord builds this house, the, the men who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those who guard it watch in vain. And so, Lord, we, we lean on you and we ask, Father, for your grace over us even this morning, that you'd soften our hearts to your word. We look forward to what you'll do among us, Lord. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Before we go to the word, you can open your green books to number 217. You can stand together, and as you're doing that, let's, let's pray together. So let's stand together. Stand together. I forgot to do the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray together as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. 217. Lord, from sorrows deep I call When my hope is shaken Torn and ruined from the fall Hear my desperation For so long I pled and prayed God come to my rescue Even so the thorn remains Still my heart will praise you Storms within my troubled soul Questions without answers On my faith these billows roll God be now my shelter Why are you cast down my soul? Hope in him who saves you When the fires have all grown cold Cause this heart to praise you
Till my faith is turned to sight, Lord, my heart will praise you. Oh, my soul, put your hope in God, my help, my rock, I will praise him. Sing, oh, sing, through the raging storm, you're still my God, my salvation. Oh, my soul, oh, my soul, put your hope in God, my help, my rock, I will praise him. Sing, oh, sing, through the raging storm, you're still my God, my salvation. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we go to the Word this morning, you can open with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy and chapter 1. 2 Timothy and chapter 1. We're, uh, we're continuing our series this morning through uh, not a book of the Bible, which is our typical practice, take a book of the Bible and go through chapter by chapter, uh, but instead, over the past couple of months, we've been going through the, the statement of faith, the confession of faith. Uh, that the deacons and I have looked over and which we'd like to adopt as a, our church's statement of faith. So uh, you'll find inside your bulletin on the back side of the bulletin insert the section we're going to look at this morning. So even as you're open to 2 Timothy, you can also have that there. That's kind of going to be my sermon outline this morning. And we're, uh, we're going to address this morning uh, what is at sometimes and what is for some people a very thorny issue. And that's the question of the biblical concept of, of election or of predestination. These are, these are biblical words, but these are words which sometimes when we come across them in Scripture may cause us to cringe or wince a little bit. I know for many years that was, that was my impression, that when I was reading in my Bible, I come across this idea of election, of God's choosing people to be saved. I would wince. I'd say, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. And, and I, it raised for me a lot of questions. And maybe you're here this morning and this idea raises for you a lot of questions. First of all, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean that God elects some to salvation? Or maybe the question comes up, well, how does that square with free will? Don't we have free agency? Don't we have the ability to choose? Or the, the question, and this haunted me for many years, well, if God chooses some and not others, does that mean that raised, in my mind, the question of God's goodness, right? Could he choose some and not others and still be good? Another question it raised for me was, well, then what about evangelism? If God is sovereign in, in these things, then do we even have to do anything in terms of sharing the gospel? And then finally, if, the, if these questions weren't enough, I was plagued with the worry well, if God's responsible for choosing, then what if I've chosen Christ, but he hasn't chosen me? And I just, I'm serious, this, this terrified me. And so 
For many years, when I read my Bible and the word election or the word predestination came up, I'd skip over it. I'd read the passage quickly and try not to think about it, sort of shove it over there. It's like, I don't want to think about this because it makes me uncomfortable. And what I hope we'll see this morning as we, as we push past the discomfort and actually look at what the Bible says about these things, um, that there are real answers to these questions and these concerns, and that, and that actually the doctrine of election should be a real comfort to us. I really want us to see that by the end of the service this morning, because that is how it's applied in Scripture. When the Apostle Paul, when Christ talk about this doctrine, they, they mean it as an encouragement for those who believe. And so I really hope we'll see that this morning. I want to begin by reading a couple of verses in 2 Timothy, and then I want to ask God's blessing over our time together. So 2 Timothy, and I want to begin in verse 8. This is an encouragement from Paul, the Apostle Paul, to his young friend Timothy. He says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we, we ask you especially this morning for a, for a gift of your Holy Spirit, that our minds would have clarity as to what the, your scriptures teach about things which are at times difficult to understand. We know, Lord, your, your mind and your ways are greater than ours in many ways. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do us the kindness of, of bending down to us and, and giving us these truths in words that we can understand and in words that will encourage us on in our walk with you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to handle this this morning with a series of questions and basically ask and hopefully answer each of those objections that ran through my mind as I was reading these passages as a young person. So, first question, what, what is election? What does this even mean? And um, I'm thankful for the words of the Confession of Faith we're looking at. These are written some 200 years ago. Uh, they're from the New Hampshire Baptist Confession and... and uh, they put it really well. So it begins like this. We believe that election is the eternal purpose of God to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. There's two alternatives in terms of, in terms of God's position towards the universe. Either he is sovereign or he is not. Either he is in control of the events of the universe or 
these things are outside of his hands. And the clear teaching of scripture is that these things are not outside of his hands. That he has an eternal plan for the world. Not that we understand it always, uh, but, but that the world is not outside of God's control. And so the confession says we believe that election is the eternal purpose of God, that he actually has an eternal plan according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. So when we put those three words together, regeneration, which is the new birth, right, being born again, sanct- being sanctified, which is being set apart by the Holy Spirit, and then being saved from sin and death and hell through the blood of Jesus, what we're talking about there is the whole work of salvation, right? God's work in saving us. And what the confession claims, and so let's ask and see, does scripture actually teach this? What the, what the confession claims is that this great work of God in regenerating, sanctifying, and saving is all according to an eternal plan of God. I think this is true. I think scripture bears this out. I want to see this in a couple of places. First of all, in 2 Timothy, where we just read, So Paul's encouraging Timothy. Uh, Timothy's facing opposition uh, in uh, in his work. Paul is certainly facing opposition. He's writing this from prison, right? And he's encouraging Timothy in the faith not to falter. And he encourages Timothy by reminding Timothy that what he's doing in sharing the gospel and what is going on in their lives in terms of this great work of salvation is actually the culmination of an incredible eternal plan of God, right? Verse eight, he says, there don't be ashamed, Timothy, of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace so God has this purpose and he has this grace that he's shown to them which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began so Paul understands that the Lord has actually given him and Timothy and I would extend this to all who believe a holy calling a purpose and grace, which has been bestowed on us, not as an afterthought in the, in the last couple of years, but actually from before the ages began. Again, that the story of the world is not some accident. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure, right? That the Lord is actually writing this story, and, and, the, and the broad outlines of it and even the particulars were known by him, even from before the foundation of the world. So Paul affirms these same truths in the first chapters of the Ephesians as well. Ephesians chapter 1. And he says this, and Ephesians 1 is just a, it's a trumpet blast of worship. Right? Paul is just overwhelmed with the grace of God. And he says this, Ephesians 1 verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How good is God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's looking around at all that Jesus has done for him, right? In saving him from his sin, in adopting him into the family of God, and giving him eternal life. He says, this is incredible. This is incredible. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
So this is, this is election, this is the choice of God, even before the foundation of the world. He chose us that we should be holy, sanctified, blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So Paul is marveling at this work of new life, of sanctification, of salvation that he's received in Jesus, and he roots it all in the eternal plan of God. He says, isn't it incredible that God has had this plan to save us? And he's writing to the Ephesian church. He says, all of us, all of us who believe, God has had us in his mind even from before creation. He says, isn't this, isn't this incredible? There's other passages that bear this out, but we've got a lot to work through. So I think that's enough between that first Timothy, second Timothy passage and this Ephesians passage for us to be able to affirm with the confession, yes, election is the eternal purpose of God according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. Okay, there's a definition. So now let's, let's deal with all of our questions. Maybe you have them now, right? And the first one always out, right out the gate is, well, what about free will? Don't we have a choice in the matter, right? If, if God chose me, does that mean somehow I didn't choose him or that I'm a, a puppet, right, or a marionette or a robot? Those are kind of the caricatures that are thrown out about this, this scriptural concept. I appreciate how the confession goes on and clarifies. says this, we believe that election is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man and that it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. I think, this is, I think this is a good summary, right, of what I see in Scripture, which teaches both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings, both that God is sovereign and that we are real decision-making agents in his world with authority and responsibility. Okay, that both of these are, are the case. Um, the confession uses this term free agency and this, um, this is, a, this is a, a theological and philosophical concept with a, with a, dis a distinct meaning, okay? So free agency means, uh, so free agents are people who are able to choose to do what they want to do. Free agents are people who are able to choose to do what they want to do. And so the confession affirms we're free agents Let's, let's get some words of Jesus in our mind and turn to John 15. We'll come to this passage a couple of times. It's this is quite the thing out of the mouth of Jesus. John 15 and verse 16 this is what Jesus says. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He goes on, but I want to think about those words in particular. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Now, does Jesus mean that at no point we had a moment where we chose him? I don't think he means that. Right? When he chose his disciples, they all chose to say yes, right? There's decisions on both hands. But Jesus seems to be indicating here, I think, that his, that his decision comes first. 
Like before the disciples say yes to him, he comes and says, come with me, follow me. You did not choose me, but I chose you. So when we came to Christ, let's ask this personally. When we came to Christ, did we choose God or did God choose us? Yes, right, Jane, yes. This is not an either or question, this is a yes. Is it God's sovereignty or is it man's agency? Yes, right, it's it's both of these things. It's both of these things that God chose us and that we chose him. And I think at least part of the way I've, now the confession doesn't spell out how they're connected. The confession just says both of these things are true. The way, the way I reconcile these things in my mind uh, is thinking about the language Paul uses in Romans 7. Romans 7. You can turn there if you're, if you're keeping up with me. We're going to take a road trip around Scripture this morning. Romans 7. And Romans 7 was a great comfort to me when I read it for the first time because in Romans 7, Paul's basically saying, man, I know what's good, but I can't do it. <laughs> I know what I should be doing, but I keep finding myself sinning anyways. Right, verse 15 of Romans 7, what does Paul say? He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good, so that it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Haven't all of us found ourselves in that situation? It's like, I know what I should be doing, and yet I have a heart of flesh. And Paul cries out about this, right? Verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul recognizes that sin has actually had such an effect on his heart that even though he he knows the right thing to do, he still ends up doing the wrong thing. And so here I think Paul describes the, the state of all of our hearts apart from the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit. Because he goes on to say, who can free me from this? And he, he, he tells us the answer in Romans 8. It's the Spirit of God. It's walking in the Spirit. It's actually power from God from outside of ourselves, which enables us to walk in light and life. It's not something we muster up on ourselves. It's, it's actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. Here Paul is describing what Martin Luther came to describe during the Reformation as the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will. We're free agents. We can choose to do whatever we want to do. But as sinners, we want to sin. We can do what we want to do. But we want to sin. In our flesh... At least according to Paul, we won't choose to follow God. We'll choose to keep on going on in the same direction that we've been going all along. According to Paul, the mind set on the flesh, this is verse 7 of chapter 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Which should make us think of Jesus' teaching in John 3, right? Which we looked at a number of weeks ago. We talked about the new birth. What does he tell Nicodemus? You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born of the spirit. It has to be this work of God on our hearts that even enables us to come. So again, let's ask the question. Was it, was it we who decided to come to Jesus or was it God who drew us? Yes, yes. Did we choose God or did God choose us? Yes, and we chose God because he chose us. We came to him because he opened the the eyes of our hearts to see him and to love him. That's my understanding of how these things work together. I don't believe election and free agency are, are in contradiction to one another. We believe that election is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man and that it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. Um, there's so much more we could say here. I'll just share um, an image that Pastor Steve used to share, which I, was, I found immensely helpful as soon as he shared it. I was like, that's exactly the way it is. Um, he, he said that this whole thing is kind of like a gate, like a gate. And I don't remember exactly the verse he used, but I, I think you can apply it well with John 6 um, and what Jesus says here. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's election. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's the free offer of the gospel, right? In one verse. They're not in contradiction. Jesus teaches both. And so, and so Pastor Steve used to say the gate to heaven has something written on both sides, right? And on the one side, it says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, right? That's the free offer. And as soon as we go through, we look up on the other side, and on the other side, it's written, all the Father gives me will come to me. It's not a matter of either or, it is, it's both, right? It's both. Does election mean we're not free? No. No, we are free agents. So does election mean God isn't good? There's the next objection. And this is, this is the problem that was raised in my mind, right, or one of them. It's like, okay, so... If God chooses some to be saved and not all people are saved, that must mean some are not chosen to be saved. And how could a good God decree that kind of universe? It's a significant question. The confession states, we believe that election is a most glorious display of God's sovereign Goodness. Goodness. How is election a glorious display of God's sovereign goodness? Well, if we start from the standpoint that we deserve something from God, that we deserve salvation, that everyone who has ever lived deserves the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then if we start from that standpoint, it would be unjust that God would not save all. But that's a false premise. 
what do we deserve from God as sinners? Did we, did we deserve that the Father would sacrifice his own son for our sake? Would God have been unjust not to send Jesus and instead to allow us to go down the path we were going in our sins? No, that would have been just. It actually, it would have been righteous in a real sense. None of us deserve to be saved. And so the, the real question is not, why does God save some and not all? The question is, why does God save any? Why does God save any? Is it because we deserve it? Is it because he chooses the good ones and not the bad ones? Certainly not. Certainly not. Which is why the confession says, we believe that election is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. That the idea that God saves any is a glorious display of his grace. And this is exactly the conclusion Paul reaches in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3, let's read this passage again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, listen to this, to the praise of of his glorious grace. To the praise of this glorious grace. Here in perhaps the clearest passage in all of scripture on this question of election, Paul's application of the doctrine is to say, isn't this incredible? Isn't the grace of God incredible that any of us would be saved? believe that election is the most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. These are, these are difficult questions, but it's worth allowing ourselves to be taught not by our own assumptions, but by the scriptures, right? And asking not, what do we think we should feel about this, but what does scripture teach us about these things? confession goes on to say not only that this doctrine of election exalts God's grace but that it humbles us and it really does that it utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility love prayer praise trust in God and active imitation of his free mercy because if we chose because he first chose us we can't even boast in our choice. We can't even say, yeah, I came to Christ because I'm a righteous person and I decided it was a good idea. You know, I'm, not like those, I'm not like those heathens who go on in their rebellion. I softened my heart to God. Right? And you see, there's, a, there's a, even a legalism that creeps in there, which election excludes. Says, no, what does Jesus say? You did not choose me, but I chose you that you should bear fruit. So if you're bearing fruit, you can't take credit for it. This causes us to say, in all things, yet not I, but through Christ. Yet not I, but through Christ. Um, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, 
Remember his famous phrase when he saw a notorious sinner walking down the road. He said, there but for the grace of God go I. Of course, John Newton was a slave trader, right? Before he came to Christ, he had a, a great sense of his own guilt. Um, and what Newton, what Newton didn't say was, there but for my good choice go I. Right? He says, there but for the grace of God. Because Newton recognizes, right, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That God had actually graciously intervened in his life and plucked him up out of the darkness and shown him the light. He doesn't take credit for his salvation. He gives all the glory to God. This is, this is humility. It utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility. Um, we see Paul displaying this kind of humility throughout his writings, especially in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 26, verses 26 through 31, he, he addresses the Corinthians and he tells them, Look, guys, don't get a big head about yourselves. You weren't all that special before Christ called you. <laughs> he says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful or of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Anything great happening among the Corinthians, the Corinthians had to say, it all belongs to God. We don't take credit for it. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 3, right? Where this, this whole question of Paul and Apollos, right? These are kind of the two, two big teachers in, around Corinth at the time. And some people are saying, I'm a Paul guy. And some people are saying, I'm a, I'm a Apollos guy, right? You know, I'm a Baptist. You know, and I'm, an, I'm a Methodist. And I'm a, whatever, a John MacArthur guy. And I'm a Max Lucado guy. And, you know, whatever. They're bragging about what kind of guy they are, right? And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not about any of that. It's not about any of that. What does he say? Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He says, we can't take credit for any of this. It's God who receives the glory for this. Similarly, even in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul's talking about his own conversion 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, actually starting in verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? Even Paul says, there, but for the grace of God go I. He says, I know where I was. Before God, like lightning, right, appeared to him on the road to Emmaus and plucked him out of his, his outright rebellion and changed his heart and softened him to Christ. This is humility. Utterly excludes boasting, promotes humility, promotes love. I had a very hard time understanding that God loved me when I thought God loved me because I first loved him. When I figured that his acceptance of me followed out of my acceptance of him. But this is not what we're taught in 1 John. We love because he first loved us. It's his love that comes first, actually before the foundation of the world. So that when we're having a bad week and we wonder maybe you know, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, we can know he loves me. And it's only out of that kind of security that we can actually learn consistently to love him. Right? It's love that gives birth to love. Promotes humility, promotes love, promotes prayer. 
Uh, you can look at Luke 18, verse 7 on your own time on this question, uh, that uh, the election promotes prayer. This is Jesus teaching on prayer, and it's in the context of the parable of the persistent widow. And Jesus says, um, if some unjust judge listens to a widow just because she knocks down his door every day, how much more will God, who chose you, right, and he, he invokes this idea of election, listen to the prayers of his elect, of his chosen? And so Jesus here says, uh, it shows us election should actually promote prayer because it should cause us to be bold in understanding if we belong to Christ, we're actually chosen of him, and he's not going to say no. He's not going to turn us away. Promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God. We've seen that evidenced already in the way Paul's, Paul's talking about election, right? He's bursting in praise for the grace of God. And also active imitation of his free mercy. What is this free mercy? Well, he, he showed us mercy not only while we were still sinners, but actually long before we were born that he'd set his hand upon our lives. And so how ought we to show love to those around us? Should we show them love when, when they accept it? No, but freely to give, even as we've been given. This section concludes by saying that it encourages the use of means in the highest degree. This, uh, this statement counters the question well, wouldn't election mean that we don't need to evangelize, that we don't really need to do any work around the church, that we can kind of just sit around and God will do the work? All right, that's often the allegation that's thrown against this, uh, this concept of election. But the confession says, no, 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 it's actually the opposite. It encourages the use of means. It encourages the use of means. Um, we could go to a number of passages to look at this, but let's go to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. Again, here, this is Paul, and we've been in 2 Timothy before, this morning. 2 Timothy's writing from prison, remember? I mean, P, uh, Paul's writing from prison, and, uh, and he's explaining to Timothy in chapter 2 why he's persevering in the face of such great persecution. He says this in verse 10 of 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, I endure everything, right? Everything that's being thrown at him. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, the sake of the chosen, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul has in mind this idea that out there in the teeming streets of Rome or wherever it is he's imprisoned at this point, there are people whom God was calling to himself and he knows they have to hear. They have to hear. And Paul understands as he teaches in Romans 10, right? How then will they hear without someone preaching? Right? Paul understands that God uses means. God uses means. And Paul's saying here, these means are being encouraged in me, Right? He says, I know that God has those who he's calling to himself out there, so I have to go and I have to preach and I have to call. Um, Charles Spurgeon, a great evangelist of a later century, um, used to use the illustration of saying, it'd be very convenient if all the people in his audience had, had big E's written on them for elect, so that way he'd know which ones to talk to. And he says, that's just not the case. Right? That's not how it works. 
And this is a really helpful thing to understand with all of this. We don't have the list. It's not our job. It's above our pay grade. It's not our responsibility. When it comes to evangelism, our responsibility is to give the call to all who would come. We're talking about the front side of the gate, not the back side. We're saying anyone who would come, he will not turn away. Because this is the promise of Christ. He will turn away none who come. And so we give the invitation to any who would hear. And this is why Paul says, actually on the basis of this concept of election, this is why I'm suffering. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, final question, final objection. How do I know? How do I know I'm in? How do I know I'm elect? Could I go my whole Christian life choosing Jesus and find out at the end that he didn't choose me? And the resounding answer, I think, of Scripture is absolutely not. That's not the way this works. The Confession says this, We believe that election may be ascertained by its effects in all who truly believe the gospel. And turn back again to John 15, in the words of Jesus. John 15 and verse 16, he says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus says, I've called you, I've chosen you, so that there'll actually be change in your life, so that you'll actually repent and believe in the gospel and go on growing in grace and growing in Christ. What does he say earlier in that chapter? Verse four, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, Whoever abides in me and I am in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I can remember asking this question of one of my pastors. I said, I don't know. If I, how do I know, right? And he said, just the fact that you're asking that question indicates that the Holy Spirit has wrought conviction on your heart and that you're seeking the Lord. That's fruit, we don't, have to, we don't have to be constantly kind of navel-gazing and self-examining on this question, right? If we've run to Jesus in repentance and faith, Scripture gives us every assurance that the reason we've come is because he's drawn us. Election may be ascertained very simply by its effects in all who truly believe the gospel. Uh, it goes on to say, this is the foundation of Christian assurance, we'll come back to that, and that to ascertain it with regard to ourselves demands and deserves the utmost diligence. Here the confession is, uh, is referencing 2 Peter 1. So 2 Peter 1, we'll touch on this just briefly. 2 Peter 1 in verse 10, Peter says this, he says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So what's he mean by confirming our election? This is just on the heels of Paul encouraging, encouraging the Christians he's, uh, Peter encouraging the Christians he's writing to, to grow in Christ, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, right? He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. He says, 
These qualities should be abounding in you. This is what he means by confirming your election. He says, keep growing, keep bearing fruit. Right? The only reason we would have to, to question whether we're in is if we're dead, is if we're not growing, if there's no evidence of faith or repentance. That's what Peter's getting at when he says making your, your calling and election sure. I want to finish with this, this phrase in the confession that it is the foundation of Christian assurance. Here, I think, and I wish I had this whole, the whole morning to spend just on this, because this is the power of, of, this, of this doctrine. And this is where both Jesus and Paul apply the doctrine of election in an incredible way. Not to, not to make us be thinking about lists in the sky and thinking about things that are above our pay grade. That's not the point of this doctrine. The point is to encourage us, to assure us. Um, in the providence of God, the years in which I was wrestling through th these things, and I don't know, maybe, maybe if this is the first time you're thinking about all this, you'll walk away today and say, I get it. But if that's you, it was not me. I took years to work through these doctrines and wrestle through them and to figure out how they, if, they, if they could sit well with my heart. Because um, there are difficult things here. But in God's grace, the years in which I wrestled through this question of election were also the years in which I desperately needed assurance. Because there were years in which um, I was f floundering spiritually. There were years in which I was wrestling with sin and losing. And there were years in which I had, I had the growing dark sense that maybe I wasn't really a Christian. Because I said, how can I be a real Christian and still be struggling? How can I be a real Christian when I, like Paul in Romans 7, when I keep doing the thing I know I shouldn't do? And through the encouragement of my pastor and of the apostle Paul, I came to Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 was, was for me a strong hand reaching down in, in the sea and drawing me up into a, into a firm place. This is a life raft. Romans 8. Again, I wish we could spend the whole morning on this, but it's almost time for me to be done. Romans 8, uh, a very strong statement of, of election here in, in verse, uh, verse, beginning in verse 28. This is a familiar verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There you go, an eternal purpose for those who are called. For the, and what is the purpose? He explains, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. His purpose for us is to be like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what's the picture here? It's of God at work in our whole salvation from first to last, from calling all the way through to glorification. And then in verse 33, he says, what then shall we say to these things? So Paul asks, how should we apply this doctrine? Does he go into some heady philosophical speculation? No. What does he do? 
he reveals to us the very heart of God. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, if God has put his hand on you, what can anyone do to you? And that, that's a foundation to stand on, right? That's, that's fire in your bones. He goes on. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, if God has his hand on your life, nothing can touch you. That's what I needed to hear. I needed to hear that nothing in all creation, including my own failures, could keep me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Honestly, it took me a long time to believe that. I had to, I had to meditate on Romans 8 for a long time. It took me a lot of readings to get that into my head. But if you won't take it from Paul, take it from Jesus, and we'll finish with this. John 10. John 10. And hopefully you're going to get an image here in your head that will never leave you, because this, this is so encouraging. John 10, beginning in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You're not among the ones the Father's given me. You're not among the elect. My sheep hear my voice. That's a guarantee. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And listen to this. Again, here's Jesus's application of the doctrine of election. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what does Jesus say we should think about all this? He says, well, if you belong to his fold, if you're one of his sheep, know this. You're on his hand. And this is the image that gives me so much hope. You're on his hand. And you can do a lot on his hand. You can fall. You can whine. You can weep. You can gnash your teeth. You can do a lot on his hand. You can fall over and over and over again on his hand. But according to Jesus, you can't fall off it. Because he's holding on to you, not the other way around. He's holding on to you, not the other way around. That's the foundation of Christian assurance. The question of election can lead us into all kinds of, all kinds of speculations and all kinds of thinking. And I go through spells of, of kind of getting in my own head about the whole thing and asking questions above my pay grade. And then I have to remind myself to trust. 
remind me, I have to remind myself that the Christian life is an exercise in faith. And that God has, whatever, whatever God's eternal plans, I know his heart because he's shown me Jesus. I know that whatever his plans are, and sometimes those things are inscrutable, his ways are not our ways, they're higher than our ways, but whatever his plans, he has shown me great love in Jesus, that God is love, and that the practical application of election as far as we're concerned, as far as the things on our pay level, as little ants in comparison to the mind of God, is that we are on his hand and he won't let us go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you that when we were far from you, that when we were even running from you, you sent your son to die for us. to bear our sin, to carry our shame, to die our death, so that in him we could die to sin and come to life in his resurrection. Thank you for Jesus, Father. Thank you for your love. Thank you for grabbing hold of us, even before the foundations of the earth. Give us assurance in that. And give us boldness in that, knowing that you've set us apart for a purpose, actually to proclaim the excellencies of your grace. Make us bold in proclaiming your gospel, knowing that you have many who you are still bringing in, into the fold. We thank you for these things, Lord, and we ask that you'd encourage us by your word, that day by day and week by week and year by year, as we grow in our knowledge of all that you are and of all that you've done, we would learn to love your word, even in those places where it confuses us, that we would press into those places knowing that where we have questions, you have answers, and where we have questions, you have, you have as of yet un, undelved depths of grace to show to us. And so I ask, Lord, your blessing over us as we go from here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing as we bring the service to an end. Let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom.